joblessness today has become as big a problem as lack of safe water was yeah. and uh, the world is right now reeling under the joblessness so i think one of the reasons why the government of india also picked the janajal wow as one of the technologies of choice is not because she can only deliver water but also because she can deliver jobs i'm dr parag agarwal and you are listening to gut talks double g u double t Hi everyone. Welcome to season 1 of Gut Talks, Double G U Double T, a podcast focusing on business and tech for good, experience design and gut feelings. I'm Maria, designer, strategist and venture builder, running two ventures, Gut Double G U Double T and Other Dots Foundation. I decided to launch Gut Talks as the pandemic hit. with an ambition to educate, put some karma on the board and feature entrepreneurs, industry leaders and investors who deserve recognition and have inspiring stories to tell. Feel free to email me if you need me, maria at god.com, W-G-U-T, or check the links in the show notes. Now let's get started. Our guest today is Dr. Parag Agarwal, founder of Janajal and social entrepreneur for 33 years. Back in the days, he realized that there was a big gap between demand and supply of pure drinking water and that the price was exorbitant. So he started Janajal using technology to deliver safe water for all, because safe water is not and should not be a privilege. And to put things into perspective, approximately 2.2 billion people lack access to managed water services globally. And Janajal is working to save that or to change that. And today, with traces of COVID-19 being found in untreated water in different countries around the world, we need more than ever safe water. Janajal has been selected by the government of India for implementation of 50 billion drinking water scheme by 2024 under Jal Jeevan mission. Dr. Parag, it's a real pleasure to have you on Gut Talks, and thank you for being here. Thank How you, Maria. You? I, I am so happy to be here. I mean, this is an absolute pleasure and privilege. In fact, even more because today happens to be World Water Day, and it is only providence that we are having this conversation, sending a message out to the world, to all your listeners on World Water Day. There cannot be a stronger, bigger message or a better day to have picked for this. So Absolutely. Yeah, 22nd of March. So let's keep this in our minds for the years to come Absolutely. and start, you know, making change from today because it's a massive issue and not many people know about it or talk about it. So before we jump into the introductions and so on, I want to kick this off in a different way. And I want to dive into the concept of safe water. It's something you alluded to when we had our initial conversation, right? And can you explain what's the difference between safe water and water, just to set the scene? That's a great question, uh, Maria. And I think the perfect question to start this conversation. I think it's important to understand the difference between water and safe water. And they, both of them, both these are independently different categories. They're as different as chalk is from cheese. So while there is water, and there, there could be abundant water, but it is it may not be potable it may not be fit for drinking for consumption and that is why despite the planet having abundant water 
The fresh water is highly depleted. Despite the planet having abundant water, there is still waterborne diseases, which are the biggest contributor to fatality, to mortality in the world. It triggers the highest number of diseases, contaminated water, which is why safe water is very important. People talk about mineral water, they talk about fortified water, they talk about uh, you know so many different types of water. But I think it's important to focus on the vanilla rather than all the flavors and all the combinations. And, you know, very often we've said, people have, have kind of nudged us to say, why don't you also do this? Why don't you also do that? There's carbonated water. There's so many others, oxygenated water. And we say, you know what? We'd rather choose to be an ice cream parlor that only sells vanilla rather than have 40 flavors with none of them really catering to the biggest gap that is at the bottom of the pyramid, which is the between demand and supply of safe water. Okay, thank you for that. And, and I want to add something here because you mentioned contamination, but there's also water conservation and decentralization. Is there a way we can just define these in simple words just so we can deep dive so people understand what we're talking about? Absolutely. So conservation is something that each one of us must do as a citizen of the world, as human beings. It is incumbent upon us to save water, to save resources. Anything that is a natural resource must be conserved and preserved. That is the only way to extend its availability. As far as contamination is concerned, contamination is something which is really accelerating over time. So, you know, water 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago was not as contaminated as it is today. And this is largely due to urbanization, in rapidly increasing industrialization, the building of smart cities, mining activities, just about every form of industrialization. The world talks very proudly about industry 4.0, smart cities now happening, this, that, the other. But all of this is leading to eventually contaminating water. And I think the third point you mentioned was uh, decentralization. You know, the decentralization is something that we really began to advocate since 2013, when we said that it's important to decentralize the water treatment process to basically create a level of redundancy. Right now, as you can imagine, every city, every town has a central water treatment plant or maybe two central water treatment plants where the water is being treated and then it is being distributed throughout the city or throughout the town through the pipelines. The, the grid which is there in place. But very often we now see outages. We witness that the plant is under maintenance. So for two days, there will be no water. Or for the week ahead, uh, four hours a day, there's going to be a downtime. There will be no water supply. And the dependence on a single centralized plant is very high. The moment the same process is decentralized, you suddenly create the level of redundancy and insulate the communities from downtime. And that's why decentralization is a very key word, because, of course, what we went on to do is not only first to begin with champion the cause of decentralizing water treatment, but then we went on to even develop the decentralized water distribution. And that is something we can get into a little later in the conversation. But uh, decentralized is the way forward as we see it. Thank you for that. I think this is really helpful to jump into the conversation, but I would like to know who is Dr. Parag? Like, what made you do what you do? And I'm gonna, like, throw this in, but I know that you had this, if you want, aha moment where you had to listen to your gut feeling and move forward and do what you're doing today. So can you share your story? 
That's a very strong question. Who is Dr. Parag Agarwal? Yeah. So, you know, I have to share with you very often, very often, I've almost lost the count. I have sit back all by myself and asked myself three questions. Who am I? Where have I come from? And where am I going? And uh, it, it is something that, that comes to mind very often. I think there's always this feeling of wanting to give back to communities, wanting to do good for the world, wanting to do something that impacts lives that basically improves the quality of life of people. You know, I mean, I think not all of us are blessed to be able to really provide financial support to communities around us or to people around us. And hopefully, you know, a lot of us will get there at some stage in life. But I think all along, we don't need to wait for the resources to come through to be able to do good. And I think this is something which was the biggest motivator for me, going back to that one Eureka moment when it dawned upon me that drinking water is what we should worry about, is when a poor mother with her baby, her, her child in her arms came up to me and asked me for my drinking water bottle. I was drinking out of a packaged a bottle of water those days. Half of it I had drunk and uh, I offered her money. She didn't take money. She pointed towards the bottle of water and said, give me that bottle. And I gave it to her. She immediately stuck that bottle into her child's mouth and the entire water was consumed by the child. And that is when I realized that the bottled water or packaged water has become the privilege and a luxury of only the affluent. Why can't the poor get access to safe drinking water? Why should they have to really wait for it to come to them or wait for somebody to give it to them? And that's when we decided to work on trying to make this very precious commodity available, accessible, and affordable to people. We do not do anything that does not comply with these three principles. And that's something we continue to follow and we will never discard going forward. Yeah, you make a point that for sure, it's a natural resource. We should all have access to it anyway. And yet it's a luxury for certain. But were you already working in the uh, water industry before you realized that yes. you can do something about it? Yes, I was. So, you know, I was already active in the water management space. And that was basically setting up larger water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants, effluent treatment plants, assessing the condition of pipelines, installation of flow meters, trying to minimize what they call NRW, which is non-revenue water for municipalities and municipal uh, corporations. But all of these, I realized, were long-term projects. All of these required huge amount of policy, people, and pragmatic approach to remain consistent over long periods of time. All of this would help make the environment robust to live in, to survive in, to thrive in, but it was long-term. What was needed was to meet short-term needs, short-term burning needs. That's when the realization that drinking water, you know, nobody was looking at it. Nobody, even today, you know, there are not too many people who look at it simply because they almost assume that everybody is finding their water somewhere or the other. But the point is, nobody understands that the water that is being found is actually unfit for drinking. And that is the bane of society today. So if by simply making this very basic fundamental resource available to people, it actually can stimulate the economies. It can actually trigger an avalanche of growth. It can trigger prosperity, good health, wellness. There are so many benefits. I mean, for us, water is not a product. Water is a medium. It's a medium of change. It's a medium of growth. And that is how we look at it. And that's how we approach the entire activity. 
I like the way you're presenting that. And often we talk about education and other things, but we dismiss this little thing that is water that can help, as you said it, for growth and for economies to thrive because people should feel well to become productive, to do things. So let's try to understand a little bit as well about Janajal. So I can see this. It's like uh, water on wheels. So you call it WOW, W-O-W. And you've installed this in like about 101 operating water ATM systems, as you call it, right? Across uh, various rail stations in Mumbai and uh, Maharashtra, if I pronounce it correctly, Maharashtra. Okay. And it caters to 7.5 million commuters every day. So can you explain what is, how does Janajal work? You know, like I said some time ago, uh, we've basically focused on creating a decentralized water treatment, water delivery mechanism. So we started by installing these fixed kiosks or these static water ATMs, as we call them. And water ATMs is typically the word that consumers gave the kiosk. We didn't pick that word simply because it gives them something whenever they want it. So they called it, they began to call it related to a bank ATM and started calling this a water ATM. But we started by installing these systems on railway stations, on bus stands, at places of religious worship, in municipal areas. And we've got almost 750 of these systems in rural parts of India. We've got 750 systems operating to date. And coming to the most specifically to the 101 systems that we have operating on the railway stations in Mumbai, in Mumbai, Mumbai city, Mumbai region, and Maharashtra as a state, just these 101 systems are catering to, a, there's a daily commuter base of seven and a half million passengers that shuttle on the trains every day. And imagine all of them need access to safe water. There are some of them who travel on the train to work two and a half hours, three hours, one way every day, and they return back home in the evenings. So this is what we are trying to do is basically reach out to them, make a service available to them. It's basically a tool of public convenience. It's a public utility. We we have collaborated with the Indian Railways. We are using their infrastructure. They make the water connection and the electricity connection and the space available to us. But we are the ones then who go out, install these kiosks and make safe water available to people as little as eight U.S. cents per litre. Eight cents eight, per litre. U.S. cents per litre. Okay. And, and this is the most expensive water that Janajal dispenses. So while it starts with eight U.S. cents per litre, it goes down to as little as one U.S. cent per litre in the rural environments where the volumes are larger and where they, the operating format is different. So it's a very, very lean, very down to the bone, very, very frugal operation. And the good news is it's a for-profit entity. We are here, obviously we also have bills to pay, but it is a social enterprise. It is an enterprise that aims to do good and while doing good, also do so in a sustainable manner. So sustainability begins at home, just like charity begins at home. So we believe that unless we are sustainable, we are not going to be able to do this year on year, scale it up, reach out to more people, get more stakeholders involved. There is so much that can be done that I really believe that this is the world's largest problem that affects 7 billion people, whether they see it or not, whether they accept it or not. And that is why most people choose to look away and find 
smaller problems to deal with rather than take on the world's biggest problem, which is exactly what we've done. Yeah, I totally resonate with this and with the model of 0.8 or 0.1 US cents because it's about the power of the community. And it's 0.08 uh, or 0.01. 0.01. Wow, okay. So this, obviously, now as we're talking, it might be something we don't even think about. But for many people, it's the sum that is not a lot but at least it makes them feel that they're contributing and they're not getting it always for free. But I'm talking about this because I want to ask you as well about, I'm sure you faced many challenges, obviously infrastructure, investment, getting the go-ahead from governments and so on. But the most important one is the trust of communities, I guess. And this is why involving them in the process supports. Can you expand on that one and on how you went about to gain the trust of communities and get them engaged as well? You're absolutely right once again, Maria. It's incredible that you're picking all the right points and all the key areas which had to be addressed along the way. And trust being the first. You know, the biggest problem that, again, consumers are constantly faced with is there is a trust deficit in their minds towards the water that they're actually getting from wherever they're getting it. So they don't know whether it's safe. They don't know whether it's good to drink. They just believe if they're receiving water one way or the other, they must try and drink it and hope that they don't fall sick. So that is the first area that we as Janajal really had to address is how to basically infuse trust in their minds towards us. And that's where we used a lot of technology. We used a lot of automation. We used a lot of transparency. We decided to tell people, let people know What is the tedious level of the quality of water that they're drinking? What is the pH level of the water they're drinking? And let them see it with their own eyes. In fact, our systems are automated to a level where if there's any breach in the tolerance levels that are set as far as quality of water is concerned, they stop dispensing water. They don't dispense water. So people know that if the water is not going to be good to drink, this system won't give it to me. And that is when they gradually start to develop confidence and faith on the system. And it's been a long, long winding journey. It's been a long process. It's not easy to win the trust and confidence of people, especially when they believe everybody's out to cheat them. They believe everybody's doing a flawed job. But week by week, month by month, year on year, we've been able to gain that position. And today we have people, we have consumers who come and tell us that the drinking water that they collect from a Janajal kiosk at five Indian rupees per liter is cheaper than free. Because okay. by paying that five rupees, they're investing in good health. They're investing in security. They're sure that they won't fall sick. They're sure they won't have to go to the doctor. The free water, though it's coming to them free, brings to them and to their families all the problems that they are faced with. Their children are malnourished. Their children are falling sick. Their children are not able to go to school. The livelihood earner of the family doesn't have to uh, fall sick and cannot go to work for a week and then lose a salary due to absenteeism. There are so many factors. And therefore, paying a nominal cost, it not only gives them the sense of security, the sense of confidence, but also boosts their pride. It They feel equal. Yeah. You know, it democratizes society. They believe that they are drinking the same quality of water that the rich drink. They believe that they are now getting access to the same quality of water that the biggest industrialists and businessmen uh, drink, in, not only in India, but in the world. And that is a great leveler. 
that is a huge amount of morale booster for societies you know when people feel equal it's tremendous for sure actually you touched on on the next question i had for you and this is why i touched on the 0.01 right that you right. mentioned because part of this trust and them wanting to pay and not have it for free is their pride because these people are not people who want pity they want to that's feel right. part of very of well the... said that's exactly the sentiment they don't want free they feel humiliated when they have to wait in queues to get something for free they're happy to pay a nominal cost they feel proud that they can afford it and that's very important and how did you actually achieve this level of education because they are aware that this water is safe for them so they trust you and they might know more than i do about safe water as well i think you know like they say the, the you know the old proverb uh, the proof of the pudding lies in the eating so when they start to consume the water and they realize that they're not falling sick anymore they realize that their child is gaining 3 kgs of weight in one month by doing nothing really different just their water changed by feeling good by feeling that their skin is feeling better they they're feeling more hydrated by realizing that they're feeling more energetic all our bodies are 60% water so the role of water is very very critical in our functioning in our lives and when the experience of of what they gain after they begin to consume water it tells what the reality is we don't have to go out and tell them anything we don't have to tutor them anything we don't have to go out and teach them anything they are the ones then who spread the message to others and motivate others to also adopt the same form of consumption okay so you turn them into advocates actually and this is how you're scaling up in absolutely uh, in each one is an agent of change each one is an ambassador of good water of safe water of goodness of economic growth and everybody has access to social media everybody wants to take a selfie with the system and post it they want to take, put a picture of their child of their sister and say look she was so unwell and now suddenly she's feeling better and that pride that happiness is unparalleled it cannot be quantified in terms of money no absolutely two things here i want to touch on there are certain like cultural differences in different areas of india as well so was tackling this challenge different or like very different between one area and another one and the other question i'm just linking it here is how is the experience on the ground so let's talk about a little bit about the consumers experience right so the atms or i'm going to call them the tuktuks on you know the water on tuktuks or does it go into the space and then people refill and then it goes back like how does it operate on the ground the tuktuks basically operate in a hub and spoke format so what happens is all the static plants wherever they are you know they typically face a problem the lack of capacity utilization so for example if there is a community of 5000 people there is a plant which is installed over there with the intention of catering to 5000 people but what typically happens is that over a period of time the system remains accessible convenient to only 500 people who are staying in the immediate vicinity of that plant and they find it easy to come collect water and take it home one thing we have to also remember is that a household needs minimum 20 liters of water per day now imagine it's easy to walk with an empty jar of 20 liters but once it is filled with water it begins to weigh 20 kilos of weight and then it becomes an ordeal to carry it back home therefore the moment the accessibility problem surfaces 
the plant though it is there does not get utilized enough by the community so what the janajal wow is intended to do is it will operate in a hub and spoke format let's say my palm here is the hub and these are the five wows which are the, the fingers okay the fingers and they would just operate within the community fill up water from this plant but go and deliver water to people's doorstep so that's how more and more people can be reached out they can reach out to the furthermost person or the furthermost household and deliver water to their doorstep therefore saving people a lot of time effort and allowing them to use their time to do other things rather than just you know spend 4 hours a day trying to get water for their homes absolutely okay and just touching on the cultural differences was it different between inner and another game their trust Oh yes huge so india as you can imagine is a melting pot of diversity you know cultures languages regions it's huge the official languages in india are 22 i think unofficially we speak 400 languages <laughs> so so the execution is a massive challenge in india one has to understand the local geopolitical socio cultural dynamics to be able to then relate and water being a very sensitive subject being a very very being a subject which is very dear to the heart of just each and every individual doesn't matter which background they come from they could be very poor or they could be uber rich it doesn't matter but it's very dear to everyone's heart so it has to be dealt with with a lot of care it has to be the pricing sometimes also has to be customized to suit the local environment so sometimes we go into economically weaker sections of society where i can promise you even 0.01 cents is a lot of money for them to pay per liter so there we need to think of other innovative ways we collaborate with corporates we collaborate with foundations who also step up and subsidize the cost of the water our intention as you can well imagine though we are a for profit company our intention is not to make astronomical profit it is just to stay very lean without compromising the cause without compromising the vision and the mission which is safe water for all so we will never compromise that i mean it's very easy for us to package this water and sell it for a dollar a bottle or 1 liter it's very easy to do that it doesn't take much just one packaging unit and a few more compliances but we are holding off on doing that because we really want to stay very very inclusive we don't want to disregard or discard the inclusion the societal inclusion uh, as an uh, as a typical area of focus as far as this entire activity goes and how big is the team actually currently the team is lean we have about 40 or to 45 people on board directly we've got several social entrepreneurs we've got lots of operators on board as well so you know maybe directly and indirectly we have over 100 people right now but we've scaled down there was a time when we had almost 400 employees directly and indirectly until about 2 years ago but then we started thinning out the entire operations trying to move the focus from having those who were employed converting them into social entrepreneurs converting them into independent entrepreneurs self employment opportunities were given to them so that they were able to function at timings convenient to them they were able to function in a format that was suitable to them plus then covid struck and that created a lot of limitation a lot of people had to go back home because when i say go back home is there are a lot of migrant workers people who travel from the rural parts of the country to these cities for jobs 
So when the lockdowns took place last year, a lot of them returned back to their village and they couldn't really come back to work. So all of that we are now kind of leaving behind us. We're trying to turn the Titanic around. We're trying to basically now revive the operations, scale up in an asset-like manner. You know, recently we got the government of India approval for the Janajal Wow, which was a huge win. We collaborated with Bajaj Auto, which is the world's largest three-wheeler manufacturer. And we needed a partnership with an automobile company to basically be able to implement this at scale because you know, managing automobiles is not our focus, nor is it our business. Yeah. So we needed somebody whose business it was to come alongside and support this entire endeavor. So all of that has just happened in the last two months. So now we are ripe and we are ready for large scale implementation. And we hope to be creating thousands of jobs going forward, jobs and self-employment opportunities for people. Because joblessness today has become as big a problem as lack of safe water was. Yeah. And uh, the world is right now reeling under the joblessness. So I think one of the reasons why the government of India also picked the Janajal Wow as one of the technologies of choice is not because she can only deliver water, but also because she can deliver jobs. Okay, that's a really like humble mission, because when you said you can do, you know, packaged water, bottled water and sell it, would that be another revenue stream that would allow you to scale up the other activities and support the it more. It would be, but it will need a complete different set of logistics. Yeah, for it sure. Need a complete you different set. While we can build the capacity, yeah. we choose our area of focus. Yeah, you know, for so sure. I keep giving this example internally. We have sometimes our investors coming on board and saying, why don't we also do this? Why don't we also do that? I said, why doesn't Apple sell phones with an Android operating system? Yeah. How difficult is it for them to do both? They can sell iOS and they can sell Android, right? But they don't do it. Why don't telecom companies, why doesn't AT&T manufacture uh, mobile phones? Why do they only offer uh, managed telecom networks and not manufacture mobile phones? So everybody is picking their area of focus. And we also have to do the same to be able to be more effective. Otherwise, what will happen is we'll end up spreading ourselves too thin and yeah. eventually not being able to deliver the impact that we really intend to on ground. So, you know, I, I must share with you, I don't know whether I already have, but we, we did an impact assessment on ourselves towards the end of last year. And we were shocked that to date with whatever little work we've done so far, we've delivered impact on the ground, on ground worth more than 1.1 billion US dollars. I mean, we were ourselves- Let's talk a bit about that because I would like to get to that since sure. you mentioned it. Sure. How yeah. are you measuring this impact? Because you have so, your- uh, KPIs, right? Correct. So we have our KPIs. And, you know, while we would love to believe that we've delivered impact worth $5 billion, but we don't want to be blindsiding ourselves and, you know, living in fool's paradise. So what we do is we have professional agencies who conduct a very thorough audit of all that we are doing. They evaluate our data. They correlate that with the KPIs. They assess what are the benchmarks of those KPIs, global benchmarks, and then they are able to corroborate everything and come up with a value of the impact. They're able to evaluate how much impact in terms of absolute numbers is this enterprise delivering on ground. And that is something that we've now decided to do once every six months. That is the only way we'll be able to keep everyone informed and ourselves stay informed of whether what we are doing on ground is yielding results. I mean, results are not just about profits and money. Results are also about impact. 
And Absolutely. what is the kind of impact that we are delivering? What is it that we are bringing home? And today we feel very proud that with an investment of just about six, six and a half million dollars, uh, we've delivered impact of more than a billion dollars. So I'd love to believe that, you know, this is incredible. And this is really huge motivation for impact investors, for the do-gooders of the world who really wish to come out and do something with all the value and profit and wealth they've created in their lives. It's a great way to give back and yet work with a for-profit entity. So they're not really doing philanthropy. They're actually creating value, helping contribute to create value. Yeah, that's what uh, something I really appreciate and resonate with because you know that I'm involved in a foundation as well <laughs> called Other yes. Dots. And uh, the main reason why we started this as well, because I had a personal frustration with the donations in general. I'm not saying everyone, but many, you don't know where your money goes. There's no measurable impact. If you donate, sometimes you might receive pictures of kids somewhere. And those pictures in terms of communication don't work anymore. And I've done personally research on that on the ground. People just, they've seen it so many times. It's not about that. It's about measurable impact and see how are you changing people's lives, even with 0.01 cents, right, that you're mentioning, which is not an amount they donate, but an amount they contribute for their own well-being. But it's not also about the impact you're making, you're saying at this scale while you're delivering water, but you're creating jobs and you're allowing people to go ahead and do their own thing, right? So this is as well a way of measuring it. And is it possible to share those reports, like to put the links, are they available to the public? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd be happy to share the impact assessment report with you. And please feel free and share that with people because, you know, sometimes people don't understand what that $1 that they give can do, how it can really change the lives of several people and the world going forward. And in fact, I spoke of $1 and uh, you just mentioned other dots. I am a huge fan and a huge appreciator of the model of Other Dots. The fact that they're helping mobilize donations and philanthropic activities, you know, especially the $1 model that they're coming up with. I'm a big fan of that, you know, using blockchain technologies, giving people the transparency. Even the donor wants transparency. They don't like any opaqueness. They want to know that if they've given a dollar and they were promised 10 liters of water being delivered to someone on the ground, who are those someone? How, was it A, B, and C? Did A get four liters, B get three liters, and C get three liters? Or did A get all 10 liters? Or did nobody get nothing? And their money is gone. So that level of transparency is what I think the Other Dots platform also offers. And in fact, we've been deeply engaged in trying to work together there as well. And I look forward to that very excitedly. But you know, coming back to the whole model of it's got to be money has to be a medium. Water has to be a medium. I think anything which becomes an end product, which becomes the end goal, begins to start ending. So unless everything is looked at in a circular manner, it's got to be a round table. You know, it's not without reason that there are round table conferences. You know, why are they not square table conferences? It's because everybody is supposed to be coming in and staying on the same table. Nobody is meant to feel superior versus the other. There is no head of the table on a round table. So the same philosophy applies to ecosystems and to even beneficial concepts and implementation strategies like ours. I like the analogy of that. And and it reminds me of, I think, episode nine with uh, Ravi Shidambaram, who's all about ESG score, scoring and measurement. Right. And 
his company's name is Rim because it's a circle as well. Not in yeah, that sense, it's got another yeah. analogy, but it, uh, it makes sense here to mention it. So I have a couple of more questions for you, actually. One of them is, um, you mentioned working with foundations, with corporations, governments, obviously. How did you get started? Like, did you have a proof of concept and then started building this trust and having advocates and so on. And then you attracted, like, did you do this kind of startup basic model or Absolutely. who did you attract first? Yeah. How did that go for you? Yeah. So we went out and did our own prototyping. We did our own variations, iterations, testing on the ground. We did piloting. And in fact, while the company started in 2013, the first water ATM that we ever installed was only in 2015 because it took us that much time to really get our head around what we wanted to do. I mean, we knew what we wanted to do. We needed to figure out how we we're going to do it. We needed to figure out what are the components needed? How is it going to be done in a sequential manner? And how is it going to be done in a manner that will allow us to scale? We didn't want to set up 25, 50, 100 plants and just sit back and keep making money out of those 100 plants. The intention was to scale up the operation in, across geographies. I mean, hopefully not just, I mean, those days it was early days, but we always dreamt of having a global footprint. We always dreamt of having a footprint in 100 countries, being able to reach, because water is something that every human being needs, every bird needs, every animal needs. In fact, we get calls from poultry farms, which rear chicken. We are rearing 100,000 birds. And we need water for them every day. Can you make this water available? And the first question we ask them is, how much water does a chicken drink per day? And they say one liter a day is what one bird drinks. So imagine having 100,000 birds on a farm and each of them needing one liter. That's 100,000 liters of water that they need every day. So there have been some really eye-opening, humbling conversations we've had along the way. Our prototyping, testing, innovation, our innovation cell has been extremely active internally. We've always been ahead of the curve, been always been at the end of the curve. We believe there is no end to the curve. You know, so we keep pushing the curve forward and we keep pushing ourselves to keep building something that can add more value. And all of this stems from the fact that we have a services focus. So we do what we do with the intent to serve people, to serve communities, to operate in tough environments, I mean, to operate in the desert, to operate in forest-like conditions, to operate in urban, semi-urban, rural areas, to operate at railway stations. It's a huge challenge. It's not easy to, deal, to cater to 7 million people every day with your kiosk because the time and motion studies have to be done. Can multiple people come in at the same time and collect water? They don't have time. You know, they've got a train scheduled in 20 seconds. How are they going to get water in those 15, 20 seconds and be able to make it on time and get onto that train? You're touching on an incredible point, actually, because this is not only for water and water and basic needs, but if you want to go book a hotel room, or buy something online, you don't want to wait. You want to just A, B, click, buy it, wait, expect it the next day, or if you have a delivery, but if it's booking instantly. And it's the same thing. We all want the same thing. Whereas exactly. we're, you know, in a developed or emerging country, it's the same concept. And you're touching on this, and this is part of the experience that is allowing people to come back to you. It's trust, but also execution and on time, spot on, and they know what to expect. So this is an incredible point. I wanted to highlight it because it's important and we live in this whole age of experience in design as well. 
Absolutely. We are impatient people now in a very patient world where the world is moving forward much slower than we always wanted it to. But we've lost our patience. We can't see a video for more than 10 seconds. You know, we kind of uh, jump out of it. We just move on to the next. So everything has to happen within in a very agile manner, in a very proactive manner. And it's got to work all the time. Imagine having to, you know, be there working 24-7, 365 at the same efficiency. It's yeah. not easy. Absolutely. And I have this question. You're based in the United Arab Emirates and you mentioned that you want to have this in the desert and so on. Are you conducting projects or experiments in other places as well at the moment? Yes, we are. So we have a strong operating base. Of course, India is our home pitch. India is where we are predominantly from. That's where our projects are being scaled up very actively. But we are, the company is a Singaporean company. So we have an active operation now out of Singapore, which is focusing on the ASEAN countries. And I am presently based in Dubai, in the UAE. From here, we are looking at African countries, because this is where safe water is a very big issue, not only in Africa, but the MENA region, as it is called, Middle East and North Africa as well along with the rest of Africa and South Africa. So it's early days yet, but we are very, very confident that sooner or later, we'll be able to find the right implementation partners. We'll be able to find the right collaborators to work with. As a company, we don't back ourselves to be able to go into all these environments and implement ourselves. In fact, just two days ago, I met with a dear friend of mine who's from Lebanon and uh, he's from Beirut. He said this would be so good to deliver water to people over there. So yeah, absolutely. he said that he's going to th think about doing something like that and see how this fits in the Lebanon context. So, you know, we are very, very keen to reach out to more and more people to work in tough environments. And when I say tough, I don't want to define tough, but, you know, tough can be as tough can get. So it's always going to be a challenge, but we're always up for it. I'll simplify it for you. So if you have your friend coming from Beirut, good luck with that, tell him, because the levels of corruption is just incredible. So this is That's one, right. of, one so, of the areas. So all the challenges, all the challenges which are fraught with the underdeveloped and developing nations, we all know what the problems are. You know, Africa yeah. is no less, and uh, Asia largely has also got its own problems. But end of the day, I think the one thing that we've also experienced with this activity is that it resonates with people, with the administrative political system. People decide to do good, to give back through this medium. They're happy to tell themselves, let me allow this activity to really happen on the ground because it's a good way to give back. Let me try not to make money from everything I do. So yeah. I think we've been able to steer clear of any such practices. And while there are inherent expectations at the outset, but I think uh, we are able to mitigate and defray them very quickly. And that's very difficult, actually. Like, I'm in order because it's, it's really I call tough. it, so Maria, I call it milking the bull. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing, actually, I've been wanting to ask you along the way while having this conversation, it's linked to what we started talking about at the beginning. And I'm going to quote you here. And you say, destroying water to deliver water was never an option for us. I've got it written here because it's something I read from you, right? From your report. And if you think about climate change today, how does Janajal fit into all of this to preserve the whole ecosystem? So, of course, so let me just lay out as bullet points how exactly we feel we are contributing to preserving ecosystems. You know, first is we are conserving water in terms of quantity. So we are trying to minimize reject water. We are trying to use 
water treatment technologies that are relevant and that apply to the effective contaminations contained. So for example, I've always said, if you have a headache, you will not take an antibiotic to get rid of the headache. You will take a paracetamol, which is not an antibiotic. If you take an antibiotic, you will get rid of the headache, but you're going to cause collateral damage to your body because you didn't need to do that overkill. Similarly, unless suitable water treatment technologies are applied to different types of contamination, the water can never be preserved, conserved, both qualitatively as well as quantitatively. So that is one way that we're adding value. The second is we are eliminating single-use plastic containers. You know, we're encouraging people to refill their old containers. We're encouraging people to refill their bottles. We are not in the packaged water business. We are not in the bottled water business. And that is one major contribution. And that's one of the strong KPIs. The evils of single-use plastic are not restricted to only the environment. They also are the biggest cause of diseases and illnesses to the human body. I mean, the microparticles of plastic that we ingest are the causes of kidney failures, cancers. And in fact, just yesterday, there was an article where I read even fetuses are receiving the microparticles. The child is receiving that while being in the womb, simply because the mother has ingested microparticles of plastic and that is getting absorbed into the fetus. So there are some huge problems. And you know, if we have to save our future generations from this evil called plastic, the one thing we really need to do is eliminate it from what we call drinking water. There was no role for plastic in drinking water. If you ever go back to the, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, there was never plastic involved. They would fill up the water in an earthen pot and then they would just wrap it with a wet cloth, you know, chill it and then drink it. There was no role of plastic. And today there is no water without plastic. So somewhere this needs to be corrected and this needs to be brought right. So that's another thing that we do as far as uh, environment conservation is concerned. I mean, you know, all this plastic ends up in the oceans. The marine ecosystems are hugely contaminated. Every time, how often do we read about a whale being washed ashore with 10 tons of plastic, five tons of plastic or a ton of plastic in her belly? So there are problems and there are so many more benefits. I don't want to keep listing them all out. But eventually, like I said, anything that is sustainable and that is ESG compliant is what we do. Even our Janajal vows do not operate on emitting fuels. They either operate as electric vehicles or they operate on compressed natural gas, CNG, which is a clean fuel. So we are trying to stay absolutely clear of anything that is polluting or contaminating. Thank you for that. And we spoke about emerging countries mainly. Obviously, we focused on India and the expansion plans to Africa and the Middle East. Just what's the state of safe water in developed countries? In developed countries, everybody takes for granted the fact that water is good to drink. There's abundant water. And that is right. That is not wrong. So, for example, in a Singapore, you know, people are drinking water out of the tap. So Singaporeans don't know what uh, lack of drinking water is because for them, water is everywhere and whatever water they see is good to drink. But cut to Dubai in the UAE, everybody's drinking plastic water. Everybody's drinking water out of a jar, out of water, out of a plastic bottle or out of a 20 liter gallon, as they call it. And it's such a problem that, you know, it's shocking that a developed country like the UAE has to resort to plastic, you know, deal with plastic in the scale and form that they have to. So besides that, bigger problem in developed countries are their corroded pipelines. Uh, you know, Flint, Michigan in the U.S. is a perfect case in point. 
where a country like the US, which is uh, definitely a developed country, their pipelines released lead into the water and they caused such aggravated levels of illnesses and societal damage. And it's been around for three, four, five years, uh, as we know now. And uh, you can keep watching it. It's something that will not cease. So I think corroded pipelines is the biggest problem that developed nations are facing. I mean, recently there was a problem in Texas in the U.S., where there was no there was no drinking water, and again people were resorting to bringing their cans and filling them from somewhere. Uh, we've seen uh, other countries as well have their own problems. So. As far as developing nations are concerned, they may have access to water. It is expensive. It needs to be democratized and it needs to be sanitized. That water needs to be sanitized and separated from the plastic interface, which has become so integral to it. So uh, there is a huge amount of responsibility that developed nations have simply because they have the resources to be able to do this. They just need to develop the willingness. And they've got two responsibilities at the same time. One is to sanitize their own environments and clean up their own water consumption patterns. And the other is make water available to the developing and underdeveloped countries. You know, they will have to play big brother and, you know, assist the other ecosystems, assist other people in the world to get water. And I think that's where the developed nations can play a big role. Thank you for that. And let's leave it at that. And that's for another conversation, I think. Absolutely. It's another Absolutely. topic. Um, if someone wants to reach out to you, or is there anything you would like to add, or anything you want to mention to anyone who's listening? I think the one ask would be, you know, I mean, I don't want to say the same um, standard, usual, save water, conserve water. I think that is a given now. But I think uh, it's time to give water. I think it's time for people to work to make water available to others in your own little way. I mean, give it to somebody in your neighborhood, give it to a community around you, give it to, depending on your availability of resources and how much of spare time and effort and money you have. But now it's time to do good. It's time to give back. So I, my message to everybody would be that in your own little way, however you feel comfortable, you know, whether it is with $1 or, with, or it's with a million dollars, Go out and give because you only give what you have. You only give what you own. And if you give nothing, you own nothing. You have nothing. So it's very, very important that people start seeing it in that way. Thank you so much. I'm going to add your uh, links in the blurb as well. If someone wants to reach out. Please, please, certainly. Yes, all, all the links, my email address as well, uh, paragajanjal.com. That's perfect. I'm very proactive on, uh, on mails. Anybody from anywhere in the world can write to me and expect a response within two hours. So, Thank you so much. Pleasure to talk to you, Maria. This episode with Dr. Parag Agarwal comes to an end. So many key learnings about water and safe water, about starting up a social enterprise, scaling up and execution. We also tapped into experience design and how to gain trust of communities. The most important thing is focusing on short-term solutions is as important on long-term solutions as well. So hope you enjoyed this episode. Hope you learned so much and spread the word about water and drinking safe water. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Gut Talks by Maria Matloub. To support the show, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with anyone who could benefit from listening to these stories and experiences. To continue the conversation, join the LinkedIn group or the Telegram channel. 
All links are in the show notes. Thanks for listening and see you next time.